0: The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Spirit of truth, we ask that you would bring clarity in this moment. You promise that your people would know your voice, that your sheep would hear your voice, that they would recognize it. And so God, I pray that in this moment that your voice would speak through me. It would speak through my imperfections. Would we hear it loud, would we hear it clear? In your name I pray, amen. I'm a little bit confused at this passage, I must have to admit. I've been wrestling with it throughout the entire week. And uh, one time I heard a comedian say, uh, God could clear up a lot of things with just a press conference. Like, like, not a very long one either. Just like a real quick, like, hey, I want to make sure that you, you're not mixing up what I'm saying. Just, you know, just a really quick one. Um, I think that um, most of us kind of believe that. I know that I do. I know that I resonate with that. I want to hear from God, and I want to hear God speak Clearly to me, many of us believe that if God just showed up in an unmistakable way, if God just revealed God's self, you know, in a sign, some kind of a sign, speaking audibly, visibly showing up, that somehow everything would just be clear. And I kind of think that that thinking is naive, because when we look at this passage this morning, there's a lot that's confusing about it. There's a lot of of confusion and bewilderment at the response of God's movement. It's not a response that you and I would think to expect from a passage that most of us are familiar with that is really well known. We know it as the birth of the church, right? Right? We know it as the giving of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit on the believers at Pentecost. And we expect a kind of clarity to come. And so when the clarity doesn't come, when there is instead confusion, we're left to ask what the believers are asking in the passage, what they're left with. What does this mean? What is happening? What is going on? And I just want to confess that after I I read this passage, there was a lot more confusion that I was left with than answers. And so I invite confusion into this passage. I I feel like if you you don't know the text well enough, if you're not as uh, familiar with it, you might be ahead of a lot of us in this room. I think you might be ahead of a lot of us in this room because our challenge this morning is to see this passage with fresh eyes, to see it with new eyes. So what, is, what do we know about this passage? Well, what we do know is that God is doing something new in this moment. God is forming a new people for God's self. The theologian Willie Jennings say that God is breaking open the people of God. Israel as we know it, the people of God is going to be forever changed. The people of God will be revolutionized. They will be reordered, not replaced, revolutionized. And now God is bringing in the foreigner, the stranger into Israel. Israel. And bringing in people who we thought were outsiders into the people of God. And we're invited to pay attention. And what the Spirit is doing is moving in three different ways. I know that I said that I have a lot of skepticism about um, this text. There are a lot of confusion on this text on my part. But that's not for a lack of, of conviction at how I believe that this text should be interpreted. There's three different observations that I want to give to us today that I think will help shed some light on this text. And so these are my observations. I invite you to dialogue with each other because I think um, long after this this sermon is given, long after I, um, I preach this sermon, I hope that this becomes something that is a communal dialogue, not something that is just my interpretation over and against anyone else's, but it's something that we feel like God is stirring in our community, that God is moving in our community. And so the new life that we see in the passage, this kind of new inclusion or new belonging that the Spirit is birthing in the life of the church, I think it moves in three ways. The first way is the Spirit of God is moving these believers The Spirit of God is moving these believers into, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought up here. I'm just getting so caught up in the Spirit that like, that, like you know, I just, I'm just losing my train of thought. Um, the Spirit of God is moving these believers to, sorry, I lost my train of thought again. got it. Thanks for bearing with me. Um, and, it, and this is going to be really good, so just pay attention, okay? Um, okay, so the Spirit of God is moving these believers into a belonging that celebrates and values difference over uniformity. And that's very different than how we tend to think about unity in our society today. This runs counter to how we think about unity, to how we think about uh, whole peoples being unified and coming together, because we live in a country where the legacy of white supremacy has been to demand conformity from ethnic outsiders, to demand that in order to belong, that you need to be just like us. You need to be exactly like us. You need to think like us. You have to have the same political opinions. You have to talk like us. You have to forget your culture in order to be one of us. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit. Uh, in, in Star Trek, there's this nemesis called the Borg. You're either in this, on this train or you're not. So yeah. So I'm going to nerd out for a little bit. So there's this nemesis called the Borg. What does the Borg do for any of the truckies out there? They, they, ins- they assimilate, right? They, they enslave entire species, right? And assimilate them as droves, drones into their, their hive mind. I know that that, that that analogy sounds really complex. I know that it sounds a little far-fetched, but it's not too different in that it mirrors so much the legacy of white supremacy in our country, where whiteness demands black, brown bodies to conform to the white standard. I know that I experienced this as, as a middle school boy. So I, I attended a, a private school up in the suburbs of Chicago, it was a reformed private school, when I was about in seventh grade. I had to attend... Um, this school is, is this brown-skinned kid, city kid going to uh, school in the suburbs. And there's so much of me that sticks out. And so my strategy is, what are the little things that I can do to blend in to this community? How do I survive? How do I assimilate? I didn't think about it that way. That language came later. But how do I survive in this community? Maybe, maybe don't say too much about you know, your Filipino heritage. Maybe don't pronounce those words that way. Maybe don't pronounce your name a certain way. Maybe don't bring weird food into the cafeteria in front of your friends. And I say that as a way of describing the experience of what it means, what it feels like to be an outsider to a collective whole. And I say that as somebody who also knows that my experience is not unique to me, that this is the experience of many ethnic minorities in our country. Many ethnic minorities who are trying to belong and, and the church, unfortunately, sadly, is not immune to this. The legacy of, of white supremacy in our country also means that the church has inherited this kind of unity by conformity. It's, it's infected our imagination. And so there's, there's a, a writer and a speaker, Dante Stewart. We're going to read um, one of his quotes um, we says salvation means uh, being disconnected from our people, from our community, and brought into the white family of God. Blackness should be demonized and whiteness divinized, and that was a terrifying thing about what I had become. My body and my blackness had become a problem, and I let it. I'd passed into the other world, the white world, and I had become free, wet, and washed, and clean. White as snow, and white as white folk desired me... Me to become. That day I went down dry and my body came up back wet. The waters bringing me into whiteness, one, I came up new. I was not black, I was Christian. That's at least what I was told. My Christian identity was more important than my racial identity. It's a heartbreaking, dehumanizing statement because the unity by conformity is now baptized in our language, a religious language, What we're asking our ethnic siblings, our, our ethnic minority siblings, to sacrifice whole parts of who they are so that they can belong. And like I said, it, is, it isn't always overt, as in my experience, sometimes it is very subtle So you do small things to try to assimilate, to try to fit in. And at the same time, what keeps on bombarding you is this idea of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism to a middle school Filipino boy all those years ago. And slowly but surely, what happens to me and and to fellow um, ethnic minority siblings is that we start to believe that our brownness is somehow inferior, our culture is somehow inferior to the white standard. I remember that I slowly started to believe that as a middle school boy. I slowly started to believe that my Filipino culture, that's that's inferior. And it came to the point where I remember my brother, me and him are having a conversation. Um, I was in college and I had a conversation with my brother and he said, you know, when people look at you, they don't see Filipino. They see white. And then he said words that kind of broke me after that. He said, and, and I wish I had that. That's the opposite of what the Spirit is doing in the passage, right? That's the opposite. It's not an erasure of differences. It's not a diminishing of differences. It's just an affirmation of these differences. And it's through these differences that we learn how to become wholer, fuller selves. And that is the miracle of Pentecost, is that God is somehow able to create a union, or as Willie Jennings says, join peoples without those differences being erased. Second thing that I think the Spirit does is the Spirit. Here you go. I'm losing my train of thought again. This kind of killed me. Um, and the second thing I think that the Spirit. Um I'm so. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah um second thing I think that the Spirit is doing in the passage is moving the disciples towards interculturalism rather than the multicultural ideal. So when we, often, when we often think about this passage, we often think about it very much like we think about diversity in our world. When we think about diversity and becoming a more diverse church or a more inclusive church, I think most of the times we think about that, we say, you know, if we just get the people in the room we just get the right people represented, we just do representation well, then that automatically means that we are becoming an inclusive community of Jesus followers. And I think that it's important to mention that in that passage, the disciples actually accomplished that without the work of the Spirit. They've gathered those people before the Spirit arrives. And the Spirit isn't content with providing us with a kind of convening power. It's a relational power that the Spirit is drawing us into. And so when we think about this, this idea of interculturalism versus multiculturalism, bear with me, it's a little bit technical. Multiculturalism is like something that you would probably see in the Olympics, right? We have these various countries represented, they don't have to interact with each other. It's very much like you would try to, what you would see in, in a neighborhood that is multicultural. We have all these stores and businesses that are owned by, by uh, people from various countries, And in that neighborhood, it's still segregated. We don't necessarily have to interact with each other. Interculturalism is different, right? What interculturalism says is that it's about relationship. Interculturalism is about mutuality. In interculturalism, there is a deep respect and an understanding between all people who are present, where there's this mutual exchange of ideas, where it's like, I can learn from you because I am growing when I learn from you, because I think that you have something to offer me that no one else can offer me. And that's the ideal that I think that is coming up more and more in this passage, is that the spirit isn't content with just having a multicultural community. The spirit, that's the first step. And I really want to say that representation is important. It's a crucial step. We need representation. But it's the first step if we want to become an inclusive community. It's not the only step. What does it mean to be a learner, to take a posture of learning when it comes to voices that are marginalized in our community, in our neighborhood, in our city? What does that mean? What does it look like for us to not take the posture of expert? Not, not take this posture like we have everything figured out, but that as the disciples are doing in this passage are being led to do, learning how to speak a language, learning how to submit ourselves to voices that have been pushed to the margins. There's this quote uh, by Willie Jennings that says, to learn a language requires submission to a people even if the person of a single teacher, the learner, must submit to that single voice. Learning what the words mean as they abound to events, songs, sayings, jokes, everyday practices, habits of mind and body, all within land, within a land and, a, and the journey of a people. I think, I think that kind of humility... Is what we need. So don't, don't go after this, don't go to, to your uh, minority friends and start bombarding them with, <laughs> with your questions. But, but what does it mean for us uh, to learn from those voices, to have those voices mentor us, to, to guide our thinking? And lastly, I think that the Spirit is moving these people. These, these believers at Pentecost, to love. At the risk of being overly simplistic, the point of this text, whatever Pentecost is, whatever else we see, what is being revealed in this text is this power of love. And is the emphasis on love, not the gift of speaking in tongues. If you remember what the Apostle Paul says in 1 first, first Corinthians um, that gifts are means to an end. They're a way that God expresses God's love. That's why that's given in the passage, because God is revealing to these disciples the extent of God's love for every tongue, tribe, nation, people who are often excluded. And so the call is this invitation into that love, not the exercising of gifts, and that's something that I have to remind myself of constantly. So some people, um, some people ask me, you know, Joshua, when you're, when you're thinking about, like, your ideal youth leader or a youth pastor, what, what do you think of? Who do you normally think of? And I think, well, you know, if you asked me that maybe a, a few years ago, uh, sorry. <laughs> Not a few years ago, when I first started out in youth ministry, um, I would have said, you know, something like, "Oh, they got to be really extroverted, right? They got to be the life of the party." This is a, you know, write, write down, write all this down. This is important steps for being a great youth pastor. Um, uh, they they got to be talented. Got to be able to speak well. You got to be funny. You can't forget what your notes are in front of people, <laughs> right? You got to be able to command a crowd. You got to be able to um, be athletic. All of these things focus so much on talent and gifts. And if you ask me today, what I would say is that you know what what students really care about is to know that you care about them. That's the that's the thing that they care about the most. It's the, it's the Greatest need for any of our youth is just to know that you love them. Just to know that you care about their everyday lives, what's going on at home, the drama with their crushes, school, what kind of video game that they're playing. And know that you're going to be there for them in times of crisis. That's the, the deepest need. For our students. And I think that that has relevancy in this passage because notice that the main character in the story is not the disciples. The disciples are interpreting what the Spirit is doing. The main character in the story is God. This is something that God is doing, that God is unfolding. That's the emphasis over and over again. If you look at what Peter says in the rest of the passage, this is something that God is doing, not something that we're doing. We are witnesses to the divine love that is unfolding among us. And we are called to join and participate in that. And We're responding to that. In no way do we cause those things. In no way is it just our love, but God's love for other people. And I think that if we're going to be very serious about the work of justice, which is such an important thing to do, especially justice across racial boundaries, for ethnic minorities who've been excluded, we're going to need to learn that love is the most important thing. Not our ability to gather people. Not our ability to amass a following or expand our influence or to to draw a crowd. It's in our ability to love. It's the quality of love that you have in your heart for that person. And I pray that that would be the main driver of why you would want to pursue justice in our world for those people who have been excluded and pushed to the margins. The most beautiful line, I think, in this passage is when uh, the believers say, we hear the deeds of God in our own language. It's something that belongs to us. Not a universal language that everyone can speak, It's our language, it's my own. It's as if God is speaking directly to me in the way that I need. And I pray that that would be the impact of our love as a church. I pray that that would be the testimony of our church as we continue in the work of renewal in our city. Pray with me. Spirit, we ask that you would keep us others focused rather than self-focused. God, we pray that you would protect us, God, from defaulting God, to the status quo which demands conformity at any cost. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the things that we need to do in order to speak the language of people, of peoples. We ask that you would give us the sermon to know how to center our voices. I mean not how to not center our voices, but to center the voices and elevate the voices of the marginalized in our midst. And we ask this in your name, amen.